Hello everyone and welcome to episode 7 of the Road to Transhumanism show. I'm your host, Elio Jrej, and this podcast's main objective is to inform the public about the technologies that will most probably impact the future of human evolution. Today, my guest is the anti-aging pioneer, Dr. Aubrey de Grey. There's a very low probability that you're listening to this podcast without knowing who this man is, but for the people who don't, Dr. De Grey is a biomedical gerontologist, editor-in-chief of the Rejuvenation Research Academic Journal, and a famous author with important contributions to the fields of medicine and computer science and others as well. He's also the co-founder and chief science officer of the SENSE Research Foundation. Hello, Dr. De Grey. Hello, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm very happy to have you on my podcast. And uh, I usually start my podcast with my definition of transhumanism. But since I have the privilege of talking to you today, I would like to know, if possible, your definition of transhumanism. (laughs) Well, okay. Um, So actually, I would like to give you two separate answers to that question. Because I have a definition of transhumanism, the thing, and I also have a definition of transhumanism, the word. And they are not the same. Um, So transhumanism, the thing, really, for me, is the the pursuit of pioneering technologies that will dramatically improve people's quality of life and, of course, maybe people's quantity of life. Um, So that includes many things, of course. It includes work on the biology of ageing, which I do, but it also includes nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, many things. I think that really what distinguishes transhumanism from technological um, innovation in general is the ambition, the amount by which transhumanists believe that we can productively improve the human experience of life with technology. But the word transhumanism, to me, has a different kind of definition. It means kind of changing who we are as a species. It means um, it's, it's, it's more psychological and philosophical. And, and so I actually have a big problem with that. I think of myself as very much a transhumanist in the first sense. I am a pioneering technologist and I want to change people's lives dramatically but I am very much not a transhumanist in the second sense. I believe that the right way to look at pioneering technology is as a continuation of the process, the progress that we have made with technology over the course of civilization. And I especially think that when we discuss these technologies with the wider world, it is counterproductive and damaging to give the the wider world the impression that we want to create a new species or something like that. So I think that the word transhumanism is actually a problem and I don't like to be called a transhumanist. Okay, so that's that's a very interesting perspective of uh, the transhumanist movement. And since uh, you just uh, 
mentioned this. What can you, what can you call yourself as a person who is who is a pioneer in the field of anti-aging and fighting uh, this disease that it's uh, it's a pillar of transhumanism. Uh, super longevity is a pillar of transhumanism. So what can you call uh, this movement? I just call myself a medical researcher. Really, okay. that's all I call myself. Really. Okay, and that, that's and great. I think one part of this to be very to be really to emphasize is that I don't work on longevity, let alone immortality, which you know the, the media would tell you. Yes, exactly. I work on I work on health, and that is all. And yes, I am very pleased that if we succeed in improving people's health in the way that I'm working on to the extent that I think we can, then there will be a big side effect in terms of longevity, but it's just the side effect. Okay. So Dr. Degray, every person who at some point felt sick of, of aging and had access to the internet has most probably came across your work. You claimed in fact that aging is a disease and that the first human to live for a thousand years is most likely currently alive among us. And you also previously classified seven categories of self-damage, of cell damage, excuse me, and developed a maintenance approach to fight aging. So with this technology available today, do you believe we fully understand what is aging? And how far do you think we are from actually achieving uh, super longevity or uh, like extending human life? Okay, so there were about half a dozen questions in that question. Exactly. So, uh, let me let me try to pick them apart. Okay. First of all, when you when you said self damage, that was actually more accurate than cell damage, because some of the damage happens a consequence of the body's normal operation, the processes that keep us alive from one day to the next. So self damage is actually a very accurate way to describe it. Now, yes, you're right. I have um, enumerated these seven categories of damage that accumulate throughout life and that eventually make us sick and eventually kill us. And um, to say that we fully understand aging would be an exaggeration, but we seem to understand aging really quite thoroughly at this point. And the best reason why we can say that is because those seven categories that I listed 20 years ago now I'm still, I'm still sticking with the same classification. I have, you know, we haven't discovered anything in those 20 years that has necessitated a, a revision of that classification. We haven't had to add category number eight. And in fact, it was already nearly 20 years at that time when I first came up with this classification, it had already been nearly 20 years since we had discovered any of those. So we're looking at nearly 40 years now when we have not discovered anything fundamental that we didn't know before about aging. And that's really good news because, of course, it is, you know, indirect circumstantial evidence, but still strong evidence that we're not likely to discover anything in the future either. So that's fantastic because it means that we know what we're working with. We know what kinds of problems we need to solve. And indeed, those problems, you know, the solutions that I proposed back in the year 2000, 2001, um, those solutions still look really good. Some of them have become easier because we have had good surprises, good discoveries that have kind of generated shortcuts in how we can implement these, these repair approaches. 
But by and large, we are just making good progress on the actual research programs that I specified and described 20 years ago. Okay, so do you still stick with the idea or the theory that probably a person who is living today among us will live for, let's say, 150 years more or a thousand years, probably? Yes, I do. Back in probably 2004, I started to talk about a phenomenon that I call longevity escape velocity, exactly. which is a really important concept when we talk about the magnitude of this longevity side effect that I'm talking about. The thing about damage repair is that if we do it reasonably comprehensively, then we are rejuvenating people enough to buy ourselves time as scientists to develop better rejuvenation technologies. So there will come a point where we reach a, we reach a kind of cusp, a bit like the singularity that a lot of people in transhumanism talk about. Exactly. And in fact, somebody called this particular cusp the Methuselarity. So the idea here is that we will reach a point where we are staying one step ahead of the problem, where we are improving the quality and the comprehensiveness of these rejuvenation therapies faster than time is passing. Once we get there, people will never need to get sick as a result of having been born a long time ago. And that means that the risk of death will be defined by causes of death that do not have to do with how long ago they were born. Things like road accidents and asteroids and, you know, pandemics, right? Yes. And, um, you know, if we look at the world today, let's just take the industrialized world. The risk of death, if you, if you reach the age of, let's say, 26, then your chance of not reaching the age of 27 is really small. It's less than one in a thousand. So even with today's technology to prevent death from causes that do not have to do with one's age, we would still see people mostly living to more than a thousand years old once we eliminated aging, once we reached the Methuselahity. And of course, that's a ridiculously conservative estimate because we know very well that other technologies are being developed all the time that are reducing our risk of death from other causes, whether it's self-driving cars or you know, better vaccines or antibiotics or you know, better asteroid detection, all of these things. So actually, yeah, I am very confident that most people alive today will actually live to a thousand. And that's completely amazing. But the topic of anti-aging is still considered as taboo for lots of people, as you may know. And I personally understand this due to the fact that utopia has a different definition for each individual. Well, since human's perspective of the world is mostly based on fiction. So as a pioneer scientist who's spearheading the global war against aging, do you think the hardest challenge is in the anti-aging scientific research or instead in the mass population's blurred perception of things like aging, immortality, and death? That's a great question. And of course, we can't really say it's one or the other because the public's perception, and as you say, it's blurred and distorted perception of this topic um, has an impact, a huge impact on science, on the research because at the end of the day, it changes, it, it limits the amount of financial resources that are available to do this work. And for sure, 
if there were better financial resources, the work would be going faster. So the two things are very closely linked. And it's largely because of that, that I spend so much of my time, not just you know, doing the science, but getting out there on stage and on camera and on podcasts like this, um, you know, educating people, getting people to understand that they must have a clearer under, uh, view of what re this is really about and why it's so important. Now, of course, I'm not really blaming the general public for this, because the fact is, since the beginning of civilization, we have all known that aging is this absolutely ghastly thing, and it happens to everybody at a reasonably predictable age. So, you know, people have been coming along since the beginning of civilization and saying that they know how to fix it, that they have the fountain of youth in some way. And of course, they've always been wrong. So it is perfectly reasonable to be skeptical when the next person comes along and says that they think they know how to fix it, right? And of course, I'm working with that. I am developing the science with my team and with, with the rest of the community. And every little step of the way, makes it slightly more believable that we will actually succeed in this fairly soon. And it makes it slightly more possible to, you know, to take the emotional risk, if you like, of getting one's hopes up. The fear of getting one's hopes up is really what drives the irrationality. It's also the same in fiction. You mentioned how, it, how um, the, a post-aging world is often depicted in movies and books and so on. And of course it is almost always depicted in a bad way, you know, as if like there would be other problems that would be so terrible, um, you know, and that kind of helps people to carry on tricking themselves into thinking that aging is some kind of blessing in disguise as a way of putting it out of their minds and getting on with their miserably short lives and making the best of it rather than getting their hopes up. Exactly. And um, I, I think that uh, Today, with COVID-19, we still, we're still living this, this fight between trusting the science and trusting what we, we think is true, but it's still based on, on dark fiction, like you mentioned, with the vaccine and uh, all uh, uh, the people who are not trusting the science today. That's right. So, Dr. Degray, by now we discussed the, the what and the how of, of anti-aging, I suppose. However, for the people who are still skeptical, can you, can you elaborate further on, on why should someone be really interested in reversing the process of aging, especially with, as you mentioned, the existence of many counter arguments related to perhaps religion, overpopulation, and whatnot? So my, my main answer to that is focused on what I said earlier in relation to transhumanism and such like, that Longevity is a side effect of health. By and large, you know, people die from being sick. And today in the industrialized world, most people get sick because of being old, not because of anything else. So um, at the end of the day, we are going to see a big side effect when we keep people health, truly healthy late in life. And that's great. But what it means is that um, we need to focus other people on that, on the fact that it's only a side effect. All of the concerns that people raise when one talks about a post-aging world 
are focused on the side effects. They're focused on, you know, how the world would be different if everyone was living a long time. You know, where would we put all the people? Or won't dictators live forever? Or won't it be boring? Or doesn't death give meaning to life? Things like that. And everybody kind of just sweeps to one side the fact that, hello, nobody's going to get sick anymore. And that's really rather a good thing. So this is what I do. I always just try to focus people back onto that and say, listen, first of all, there are plenty of perfectly good reasons why these concerns about overpopulation or dictators or whatever are actually misplaced and how we would be able to perfectly well avoid these problems. But also, even if we could not avoid those problems, we have to actually ask ourselves whether they would be even worse than the problem we have today of, you know, everybody getting sick and like 70% of all deaths being due to aging, which is a really bad problem. Yes. So, so we're focusing on, on, the wrong, uh, on the wrong problem. We're finding solutions for the wrong problem, which is fighting lots of diseases that will probably, or not probably, will effectively lead to death instead of fighting aging, which, which can help uh, like eliminate this idea from people's mind. Yeah, okay, that's the kind of that's a slightly different misconception, but it's also okay. another very important one. So let me spend a little time on that. Um, yes. so there is this enormously erroneous misconception in society that the so-called diseases of old age, whether it's Alzheimer's or atherosclerosis or osteoporosis or almost all cancers or type 2 diabetes, th these things are in some sense distinct from this other thing called aging itself, which consists of, you know, frailty and other not very well-defined things. That is a really deeply entrenched assumption in society. And it's utterly wrong. It has no basis in biology whatsoever. It's only semantic. The only difference between these so-called diseases of old age and aging itself is that the diseases of old age are the aspects of aging that we have chosen to give disease-like names to. That is all. And that's really important because you may ask, you know, why are we so wedded to this misconception that there is some distinction there? The answer is because that means that we can kind of distract ourselves from the issue of aging itself by pretending that these little bits of aging are actually diseases and then focusing on trying to develop cures for them. Now, not only does that make no sense biologically because we've still got to fix aging itself, but also it makes no, no sense medically because these things, because they are parts of aging, because they are side effects of being alive, they can't be cured in the sense that an infection can be cured. And therefore we are misspending a huge amount of money globally trying to develop such so-called cures for things that can't be cured. And we need a different kind of medical approach that is the same kind of medical approach that we need for this thing that we call aging itself. So this, this false dichotomy between these two subsets of aging is causing a huge problem in terms of the allocation of funds to research and to foreseeable medicine. Okay, so I can see clearly the, the difference between the two, and I hope our listeners today can distinguish the, the, the need and to, to fight as well aging, which is, as you said, a, an important disease, 
And here, I would like to ask you a question that always comes to my mind. Um, if you could live forever, Dr. De Grey, would you? I don't think about that. I just don't think about that. You know, the idea, it, it's like, you know, having an opinion about how long you want to live just doesn't compute for me. It's like having an opinion about what time you want to go to the toilet next Tuesday. <laughs> you know, I mean, what I mean by that is, you, you may have an opinion about what time you expect to go to the toilet next Tuesday, you know, because of habit. But having an opinion about what time you want to go just makes no sense because you know that you're going to have better information on the topic nearer the time and you're going to be able to act on that information, right? right? So it's exactly the same for me. You know, having an opinion about how long one wants to live, like, I mean, it just makes no sense. It's like having, it's like the idea of how long ago you were born having an impact on what you want to do next year or in 10 years, which just, why would it? Of course, today, it does make sense to have that um, attitude because there's this correlation between how long ago you were born and how long you can expect to live and indeed to live healthily uh, because of aging. But if we remove that, if, if we fix aging, that correlation is eliminated, right? So exactly. it makes no sense at all to have an opinion about how long one wants to live. Uh, I never thought about it like this. I like the analogy. And I really appreciate your efforts in, in making human life better through your research and through the SENSE Research, research Foundation. But for the people who are new to the field of gerontology and want to know more about your contributions to the world, where can they find the latest news and updates about Aubrey de Grey and his work? So our website, sense.org, is a pretty good one, I think. You know, we have a huge amount of information there, which is written for every kind of audience, all the way from real experts through to complete novices. And it's not just about what we do. We also have newsletters talking about what other people are doing, about where I'm speaking in the coming month or two, um, things like that. Um, plus also, of course, we have a contact form so you can ask questions and we're very well behaved at answering those questions. And of course, there's a nice big friendly donate button. Great. And I hope people will would uh, put the effort and the donations in, in such an important topic that is still, as I mentioned before, is still a taboo and a misconception for, for a lot of people. And thank you, Dr. De Grey, for your contributions in this, in this hugely important area of research. You're welcome, and thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Before, before we end this lovely discussion, any final thought or recommendation you would like to share? Um, well, of course, the big question that people ask me all the time when they hear this and they realize that this is the world's most important problem is they say, how can I help? And of course, the answer is different for different people. Uh, but I want to emphasize one big thing, which is that everybody can do advocacy. Not everybody can you know, support the, um, this work with large donations. You have to be wealthy for that. Though, of course, small donations matter just as much. And we encourage everybody, however little they can afford. Um, and then not everybody can um, you know, take part in the actual science at the lab bench. Um, not everybody can uh, influence public opinion by inviting me on, on a podcast, for example. But one thing that absolutely everybody can do is you can talk to your family or your colleagues or your friends 
and just educate them, get people to understand this field better. Because at the end of the day, the thing that's holding everything back, the thing that is perpetuating these misconceptions and these, this ambivalence about the longevity crusade is the fact that people don't understand it. So the more we spread the word and raise the quality of understanding of what this is all about, the sooner this will happen and the more lives we will save. And I hope that our listeners today, after this lovely discussion, have a better idea of, uh, of aging and the need to develop anti-aging technologies. And Dr. Degray, again, thank you so much for joining me on the Road to Transhumanism podcast. I really appreciate it. It's my and pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. And for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in. I'll talk to you in the next one. Stay safe. Thank you.